This is Eric Luton, pastor of the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. The ministry of Ellerslie endeavors to once again see triumphant Christianity stride upon the stage of time, to see the church of Jesus Christ built strong to stand immovable in these times of sinking sand. We hope this podcast is an encouragement to your soul. If you would like to stream live or visit us in person, or even support us financially, please go to ellerslie.com to learn. So I've been uh, walking on hot coals uh, lately with some of the topics I've been preaching on. And last week we had a message that was called When Jenny Becomes Jake. And if you're sensitized to the culture in which we live, you could hazard guesses as far as what that was about. And this is going to actually build upon that, even though I, I didn't call this When Jenny Becomes Jake Part 2. It is a sub-point of it, and Philip actually brought up uh, this week that it could be good to actually uh, follow a trail uh, that leads off of this. There's actually a few that could lead off of this. This is one. And so even though this isn't about gender uh, dysphoria or gender confusion in our culture, uh, which for many of us is just a very strange thing uh, that is taking place. For other people, it's just the norm. This is actually what a lot of kids have grown up around to the point where it has become normal uh, to them to even question things like this. And, you know, it'd be like for me questioning north and south and deciding to just them, switch them around one day. And to me, they're fixed reference points that you don't mess with lest your reality begin to crumble. And that's what we see. And as the church, we're trying to know how to engage this world in a way that is helpful. And some of us, when we get frustrated with the, uh, the trajectory of the world, respond in an incorrect fashion, which actually doesn't help the problem. It more compacts it uh, in because of our frustration. And oftentimes our frustration is even out of a good source. Like we desire the truth of Jesus to be established in this world. I know one of the frustrations that many of us in this church have dealt with is seeing the meltdown of the biblical worldview in our culture. And that our government used to be grounded in certain realities and certain things. It was sort of the in God we trust motto. And then suddenly all of that has been thrown to the wind. And we want to get mad at that because that is the wrong direction for our country. Don't you realize how precious of a gift this country is to the church of Jesus Christ and to the call of missions worldwide? And so when we see that begin to break down, we can get upset about that. And I could say rightfully so. At the same time, there's a balancing side to this, and that is that we were called and set on this earth at this time, at this hour in history, so that we could shine as lights in a darkening world, so that we could reveal Jesus to a world that is going contrary to Jesus. That is the art form of missions. We have to know how to engage a lost and dying world instead of bop them in the nose. That's not going to help them. So how do we do this? Do we do nothing? That's one option, is just to be silent and allow the world to go over the edge of the cliff. And we're just like, well, you know, at least I didn't go over the edge of the cliff. And that is a tactical plan that you could employ. However, most of us here that gather here know that there is something that we are supposed to do, but how are we supposed to do it? So when I bring up when Jenny becomes Jake, uh, what, what, what are we supposed to do? And that's a whole message, okay? That's last week's message. 
And so I would highly encourage you to go through that and to gain a primer on what I'm about to go into today because this is a subset of that. This uh, particular picture, I actually am wondering if the Kinnebrews took that picture. Doesn't that just look like a Brooke Kinnebrew picture uh, and it's like Josiah sitting there? Doesn't that look like something you guys would have taken? So Josiah, that might be you up there. But uh, this, for those of you that have been around Ellerslie for a while, uh, you might even have a chuckle inside as you hear my title, but that is sitting in your summer spot. So if we go back over 10 years, I had a message called the summer spot, and it was, uh, it's, it's pretty precious, uh, what, you know, th- this particular story. It's just one of those, you know, kid things that a father uh, loves, so I'm going back to that, and it's about a log and a little six-year-old kid sitting on a log, and so that's why this picture is really good. Well done, Annie. So Hudson's summer spot, this was summer of 2011 when uh, this happened. So here's the conversation. Hudson says, Daddy, where's my log? And I said, "Uh, your log? He says, yeah, it has blue chalk on it. Well, I don't know, buddy. I might have gotten moved to the side of the house with a terror-stricken whine in his throat. I need it, Daddy. Why do you need it? We were trying to clean up the back porch for the students. Because it's my summer spot. Your summer spot? Yeah. Why do you call it your summer spot? because I sit on it and mind my own business. (laughs) And I remember thinking, yeah, you know, we all need a summer spot. (laughs) First Thessalonians 4, 10 through 12. Paul speaking, we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Now, Pause. It's, I know I'm mid-sentence right here, but pause for a second. Remember what last week was about is how to effectively engage a lost and dying world. That we may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Isn't that interesting that this is part of what enables us to engage properly with those outside the church? One of the confusing dimensions is a lot of us see what it says in the epistles that are is showing us how we're supposed to interrelate with each other, and we sometimes apply that to those outside the church. And that is a common mistake that we can make, but there is a distinction between how we engage in here and what our expectations are in here and how we engage with someone who doesn't even know the gospel. There is a difference between how I engage with my family and how I deal with my kids and how I even deal with you guys. There's different zones. They're called governments. There's zones or jurisdictions is the word I'm going to unpack today that actually define a difference of behavior and a difference of approach. When Jenny becomes Jake, so one of the things I brought up last week was the question of what is your jurisdiction? Are you in a position to address Jenny in this scenario? And you may be. There are different jurisdictions I gave because, for instance, in here, my jurisdiction is over this church. So if something is happening in this church, I could look the other way and go, I don't see that. I don't really want to deal with that. But it's actually my responsibility to deal with it. It is my jurisdiction to address it. As a parent, I have a jurisdiction over my children. So if my children are acting up, have you ever had it where you know, a child is running rogue and doing things, you know, like knocking over vases at someone's house, and the parent doesn't do anything? 
And it's really hard when it's not your child. What are you supposed to do? And so you sort of gently go, hey, let's not touch those things. You know, meanwhile, crash uh, again, because it's the parent's jurisdiction to actually step in and correct their own child. And it becomes very, very awkward when the parent doesn't fulfill their role. You follow me? Now, it's also extra difficult when a parent who isn't in the jurisdiction comes in and corrects. That is also a very awkward thing, and we'll get into that today because that's part of what this message is about. So one of the questions I brought up is, what is your jurisdiction? So here's the word jurisdiction. You can, I'm breaking it up into two words, and you might recognize them depending on your hold of the English language. Juris, which I'm going to look at as a sphere or a legal territory, and then diction is speech. And so it's the sphere or the territory for which you have say. I have say over what is going on inside of this body, my emotions, my thoughts, and I'm responsible for that. It is my jurisdiction, and so I can't blame you or blame the billboard on the street, or I have to take responsibility for what is transpiring inside of this soul. I also have jurisdiction over a marriage and a family, so therefore I am responsible before society, before God, for what is taking place in my family. I am responsible, and I have say in this church. Therefore, if something starts to go off, I am actually the one responsible for it. I have say, therefore I also have responsibility. We're going to call this the waiting in line principle. Now, I'm only going to just be establishing a concept here. That spot in line that you possess is a form of property over which you have say. Now, this is one of those strange dynamics in life that most of us never think a lot about, but it's there and it's a great reasoning point. But when I'm standing in line and I'm waiting, I have a spot, or we could call it property, a space, a sphere that is mine. And if someone cuts in, then it's very awkward. Have you ever had that where someone like comes up with an excuse like, oh yeah, what's going on? And they end up in front of you all of a sudden. You're like, wait a minute. And it's a violation. When you cut in line, you are violating someone else's territory. And it's odd because, you know, how did you define that as your territory? Well, you know, I was in here first. And we, we all feel it and we all know it that that line and that space is important. Now, it, because this is your territory or your jurisdiction, you have say over it, which means you could, if someone cuts in, do nothing and say nothing. That is your choice. And as a believer, I would probably encourage that, right? If someone cuts you off uh, as you're going down the road, that was incorrect of them to do, but it's probably better than, you know, on, uh, or, you know, driving by them and going, you know, as you're doing that down the street, there are proper ways for us to handle the violation of our jurisdiction. But you also have the say to give up that space. Or you see someone who needs to you know, move forward in the line faster and you could say, hey, take my spot. That's your, your opportunity because it's your jurisdiction. Proverbs 23, 10 through 11. Do not move an ancient boundary stone or encroach on the fields of the fatherless for their defender is strong. He will take up their case against you. Now, it's odd, but there is this idea in Scripture of what we could call property lines or boundary lines. Now, it's strange because when God created the heavens and the earth, I don't know that he just you know, drew a line and said, and that property, you know, that's what's become part of just human growth and cultural growth is that God seems to recognize that there are boundaries, there are lines. 
just like standing in line. Someone is there in line and you show respect to that territory and you honor it by getting in behind them. The same is true with ancient boundary lines. It's weird to think that God would value the idea of property lines as opposed to saying, that's unspiritual. He actually is a protector of these territories. The Chuck Parsons violation, I'm going to call this the 1983 Thanksgiving fiasco. I was alive in 1983. I was 12 at the time, preparing to turn 13. So just to give you an idea of the age range I was and the feistiness that was already sort of developing in my soul, it's uh, Thanksgiving, and Thanksgiving is always one of my favorite holidays. You know how we have our our different holidays that we really enjoy? Uh, But Thanksgiving, there's a certain type of Thanksgiving meal that I really like, uh, and uh, it involves potatoes that are mashed. Uh, it involves usually a really good kind of gravy. There's some kind of gravies I don't like. There's some, some of you experiment a little too much. Uh, you just keep it simple and just give me the kind of gravy I've always had, and then you have stuffing, but then again, some of you go wild in the stuffing department. It's like, hey, let's try this in the stuffing. It's like, no, no, that violates the Thanksgiving meal. And turkey, you know, this, I, I don't mind a little ham. You know, ham can be as an option, but turkey still, you still want it as one of the, the real options there. Some people go and they have like steak, you know, for Thanksgiving. It's like, what am I supposed to do? This is, you know, that doesn't even fit my grid. And, you know, there's some cranberry sauce uh, there. And I, I prefer the stuff out of the can that just goes blimp. Uh, and then you cut it into slices. Actually, that's what I prefer as opposed to the fancy stuff with little globs of things in it. And, uh, you know, there, so you have like your traditions And so I would get very excited about this, even at the age of 12, this was a big deal to me. And so I I get my feast together, I go through the line, and I get my feast, and there were some options, because this was a gathering of like three families, that's dangerous by the way, if you're a protector of a Thanksgiving dinner, you have to be watchful when you have the three family gathering, because they bring in some funny stuff, right? And you know, so this, this one family brings in like some casserole, you know, with like beans and, and things like that in it. And it was like, you know, I don't prefer that type of stuff. So skip. And I go to the next thing. And you know, I make my plate just as it ought to be. And, uh, well, Mrs. Parsons had brought the casserole. And every single one of the kids skipped the casserole. And so Chuck was upset about this. And so I had my plate. I remember we were in the other room and, you know, we were, all the kids were at some table. And Chuck comes in with the casserole. And he says, guys, you know, you all need casserole. And he took a big glob of that and went on top of my masterpiece. Okay, now I don't know how well you guys are handling this right now, but that was a tragedy of tragedies. And I still, I've I've had to walk through forgiveness years later (laughs) for... Chuck Parsons and the Thanksgiving fiasco. Because to me, he was taking something over which I had say, and he was engaging with it in a matter, in a manner that in his mind was correct. I needed that casserole. And yet I didn't want that casserole. And he globbed that casserole right on something that I had say over, right? And then he went and did it to everyone around the table. I don't know, it'd be interesting if all of us, you know, figure out how many hours of counseling uh, have accrued over the years because of this whole thing. But uh, there were multiple things. Chuck uh, had, uh, and by the way, that's a made up name. Uh, But Chuck had multiple things that he did in my childhood, and most of it was in this one Thanksgiving. 
I have multiple things. Like where I, we were going to go uh, play on the ice rink uh, down at the bottom of the hill. And we were going to do some hockey. You know, one of those like street shoe type of hockey things where we didn't have any hockey sticks. So he went in. We had this, it was called a carom board. I don't know if you've ever seen a carom board, but it was one of our family's favorite games. And it had these edges to it. It's a, it's a pretty big board. It had these edges that sort of round. And so he took apart our carom board to get hockey sticks. And this is like our family's favorite game. This is the same Thanksgiving, by the way. It's like, that isn't yours. So not only was it a glob of casserole, you know, one of those funny casseroles that doesn't have any business being a part of a Thanksgiving meal, right? Smack on top of my masterpiece. But then he took apart our carom board. And then at one point in time, my brother and I were doing something and he came out of his way and corrected us. Okay, now this is one of those classic things as a kid where you're thinking in your mind, you're not my dad. Okay, I don't know if any, any of you ever had those moments when you were growing up, but it's a very real thing because it's true. As a kid, you're thinking, my dad has say. My dad can say that to me, but Chuck Parsons can't. And so I, I'm just trying to put my finger on something. Well, you know, the Chuck Parsons uh, violation. Proverbs 26, 17, he who passes by and meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a dog by the ears. When you step into someone else's jurisdiction, someone else's territory, even if it's a squabble, but it's not your squabble, you actually uh, are likened to one who uh, takes a dog by the ears, which doesn't sound that bad, but I'm guessing these are more wild dogs. And if you take a dog by the ear, you might get bit. Uh, and it might not be a pretty soon. That's what I'm presuming into uh, this situation. The babysitter phenomenon. So there is something, and it's a very real thing. I have a jurisdiction over my kids. And my kids can genuinely say to Chuck Parsons, you're not my dad, and they would be correct. However, I'm calling it the babysitter phenomenon. When I am transferring that authority to someone who's watching over the kids, what I will do with my kids is I'll say, okay, daddy's leaving. So-and-so is in charge. And what they ask you to do, you need to do. And I give them the privilege that if you violate this, to do this in response. Usually it involves calling daddy, right? But sometimes daddy might not be reachable, which means I might give them another remedy too. And I'm passing on my daddy position to someone in that situation, but wanting to be clear to my child that it has been passed off. So my child is not caught off guard by the fact that someone is trying to act like daddy or fill in the daddy position. So... Here's you know, the classic quote. I could have made it a lot more humorous, but I realize this is dangerous territory. I kept it simple. When Joey acts up, I give you permission to send him to his room. I thought of various other things that I could have allowed to happen to Joey, but that, that's going to be our conservative uh, way of handling it. Luke 10, 19. You're going to see Jesus do the same thing here. You see, he has authority above all things. All things are beneath his feet. However, we're just sort of these run-of-the-mill humans down here. And yet, when we believe in Jesus, we actually gain sonship. You could say daughtership. But we receive this position of a child in his kingdom. And we become his. We are grafted into his kingdom. And then what he does is he transfers his authority to us. 
That's a remarkable thing. I'm calling it the babysitter principle. I don't think it's, that's a good enough phrase to describe what is truly happening here. Behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents. That's a legal authority. There's two different words, you know, exousia and dunamis. Dunamis is translated power, and oftentimes uh, uh, exousia is translated as power. But one is legal authority. It's legal power. The other is physical, like muscular power. This is the legal one. Behold, I give you a legal authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Babysitter principle. But what if it is outside your jurisdiction? So one of the things that I'm trying to bring to the surface here is when you are a believer in a world and jurisdiction is a big part of it, I am needing to ask the question, what is my jurisdiction? And then what if something is outside my jurisdiction? What do I do? And that is a very common thing. I can't tell you how many young people have come through Ellerslie where their church back home, something is off. Uh, what is their position? What are they supposed to do about it? Are they supposed to stand up in church and proclaim the truth? Uh, or are they supposed to do something else? And oftentimes there are people in that church that have been given a position. Elders, for instance, are given a position, a voice to actually speak into what is taking place. And so there's another process when it isn't your role or it isn't your authority, and that's called appeal, where you appeal to those in position. And that is part of how our government is actually set up in America as well. 1 Corinthians 5.12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is, not those, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So this is a, a common thing, and Paul is bringing it up. The church at Corinth is a bit messed up, and one of the areas that they were struggling with is they were judging the world outside the same way they were commissioned to judge the church. And Paul is making it very clear that there's a distinction between the two, that the way that he is supposed to relate, or they are supposed to relate to the world outside is different than the way they relate to the church, that what he was teaching them is that's supposed to be done here not towards them out there. And so I'm going to give you a greater context for this. This is 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. So you see how we could easily, I could say accidentally, apply something to those outside. It's interesting because the context is exactly what Paul is going to say here. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? So the point is, his job isn't to actually separate from these people out here in the world. Otherwise, he would have to leave the world because they're all over the place. His job is to reach them. But within the church, he has a different say. He has a different voice. He is actually supposed to exert his love within the church, or they are supposed to exert their love by not endorsing or by being clear with their behavior towards someone who is living in violation to the kingdom pattern within the body of Christ. The most primary jurisdiction. So I could go through all sorts of jurisdictions, you know, like marriage, uh, family, uh, church, 
uh, business, if you have a business, that's a jurisdiction. And, you know, if I just came in and told you how to run your business from the outside, it would be really weird because you'd be like, this isn't your business. Uh, could you mind your own business, Eric? Isn't there a, a log with some blue chalk on it that you could sit on? You see, it's not my business. It's not Joe Biden's business to tell me how to feed my kids, right? Uh, uh, you know, President Biden, I really appreciate your interest in my family. However, that isn't your business. And it doesn't mean he has a low position. He has a very high position in our country, right? But that high position does not warrant him to step in line and cut into line into my territory. There is a clearly defined territory that each of us has, and the most basic of basic territories that we have is the soul. The human soul is one of those territories. And so just like I was giving you the waiting in line principle, where I have sort of this sense of territory, and it's wrong if you cut in line, the soul is one of the most important for us to caretake over and to caretake for and to recognize that with other people. So knocking on the front door, it's never appropriate to force your way in. So say you wanted to help someone. Say that you heard that they have a leaky faucet and you're a plumber. Well, you might come to someone's house and what would you do? Just open the door and walk in? With your tool bag, that would be <clears throat> a violation or a trespass. You see, you're not allowed just to enter into someone's house without getting permission. So what you would do is you would knock on the door or you would ring the doorbell and imagine that they come to the door and they have a real problem that you could solve, but they don't want you to solve it. What should you do? Should you push them out of the way and try and solve their problem anyways? You see, we can see things a little more clearly when we put them into a living room model than when we put them into a soul model. But this is a delicate issue that I'm bringing up, and it's an issue of jurisdiction. It's never appropriate to force your way in. Now, in discipleship, I am very, very aware of this reality because I recognize that for someone to come to Ellerslie, what they're doing is they're submitting to our leadership here for discipleship. However, that does not mean that everyone in the world that walks down the street has done the same. And so I have a different voice with someone who is here submitted to a discipleship training process than I do to have someone walking down the street. They could have the same exact problem and the same thing I'm doing for this person would really help that person. However, that person is not asked for it, nor do they want it when I approach them. And so my response to this person uh, here that's sitting in the seat and that person on the street is slightly different. It does not mean I don't love them both. It just means my access to both is different. Engaging someone else's jurisdiction, the art of loving appeal. Now, one of the things I said earlier is if there is something that I don't have a voice in, like say someone walking down the street outside of Ellerslie, they have not come to me and said, Eric, could you speak into my life? Eric, could you tell me if there's anything in my life that is hindering my forward progression with Jesus? Eric, could you, could you examine this a little closer? Help me understand this scripture. They're not doing that, right? They're just minding their own business, walking their dog by my property. Uh-oh, that's dangerous. Eric goes running after them. Hey! And, and I start going after their soul. I could very quickly violate something in their life. It's Chuck Parsons' principle. I am not asking for that casserole on top of my meal. 
So if I'm not asking for it, please, no, 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 please, no, 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 don't do that. And then it lands on top of my meal, and that can be greatly offensive to people. This is part of the delicacy that we function in, because we have a truth that they need. And what they need is a lot more than the fix of a leaky faucet. For some of them, it's eternal. Well, for all of them, it's eternal. It's eternal in its gravity. So therefore, I'm trying to figure out what is my place in their life. What am I supposed to do? I'm going to call it the art of loving appeal. So what I'm about to walk you through is something that I deal with a lot. And yet I haven't really thought about it in a specific way until I was putting together this message. It's like, huh, well, that it is true. I will not move forward in progressing with someone's soul unless they give me an open door. So I will ask for it. It's like, can I share with you about Jesus? I will not just force my way. I will present my position and I'll say, here's who I am and I care about you. I would love to help you in your situation, but I need you to allow me to help you. So let me go through a few quotes on this. I, I use the pastor thing a lot. Uh, it's actually a nice tool. And some of you are like, oh, a cheater. Yeah, but it is, it is a really good thing because it immediately means something to people. It means that I'm all fixated on spiritual things and I think a lot about it, spend a lot of time in the Bible. That's what it means to people, right? I'm sorry, I, to most people, it's, it means I'm a kook. So I have to be you know, watchful in how I use it, right? I'm a pastor. I care deeply about people and their relationship with God. It's my passion to help people with the matters of their heart and soul. Would you be open to me having, having me talk with you about Jesus Christ and the issues of your soul? Now, if they say, no, I don't want to do that, I might follow up with, well, do you mind if I pray for you? Do you have a specific thing I could pray for you about? In other words, but I'm not going to keep pressing. I'm not going to overstep. I am going to make a presentation, an appeal, and I'm hoping and praying, even as I'm doing it, that there will be a softness. There isn't always a softness. So here's another one. Someone comes, and it's, it's not an unusual thing for someone to come to a church because they have a financial need, and they know that that could be helped here. So you're coming to me and asking for money, and I may be able to help with that, but I want you to know that I would like to help you with more than that. I would also like to help you with your soul. Would you be open to me sharing with you about the good news of Jesus Christ? Now, they might not have any interest in that. But surprising, you know, when someone is coming and asking for money, they oftentimes feel a bit obligated <laughs> to allow the pastor to also share a little something with that. And so, you know, it gives you an opportunity, uh, whether or not it's genuine on their part, but they allow you into the living room and you didn't have to break down a door to do it. Here's another quote. You showed up here at church today for some reason. I would like to presume it is because you were desirous to find a spiritual solution for your life. I believe that I have that solution for you. It's found in Jesus Christ. Would you be open to me sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with you? So I've had various moments where someone who has been rather hostile to me and to my overtures ends up showing up in my life in a way that is pretty obvious that they're needy and they're hungry, and even though they've given me the stiff arm many times, they really want me to pursue them. And this is a sensitivity that I have, where I'm recognizing that they have made it clear that they don't want me to come in, they don't want me to come in, but now they're lingering near. So now I have to you know, evaluate spiritually. It's like, do they want me to press that? So I remember this one big guy came in, and it was after church, and I came up to him, 
And I said, uh, look, I, I'm guessing that since you're here, there's something that you're hungry for. He's like, I, I don't need any of this. And I go, well, I'm going to call your bluff, and I believe you may want me to pursue you right now and to not allow you to get away with just storming out of here again and slamming the door in my face. Do you want me to pursue you or not? The guy's like, pauses and says, yes. That is a very real thing that exists and sometimes someone will slam the door, slam the door, slam the door. It's our job to be consistent with love. There is a, a movie called Sabina, which is about Sabina Wormbrandt, where it shows Richard and Sabina coming up to the neighbor's door with like jellies, jams, whatever it was, over and over again. And the first time they're like throwing it down and breaking it. It's like, we don't want this, but they keep coming. And eventually the door opens and they go in and lead them to Christ. And I remember seeing that and thinking, that is such a beautiful picture of this very concept right there. This is the idea is that you can't force your way in, but you can love, and you can love, and you can love, and you need to stay consistent, and even though you get a stiff arm, don't take it personally. Another quote, look, I can only take you forward to the degree that you desire to be helped forward. Do you want me to press this issue, or do you want me to give you space right now? I don't want to violate your soul. That said, I'm very desirous to help you if you are open to it. In soul matters, you mustn't cut in line. So when you're dealing with the matters of the soul, it is important not to get your casserole out that you know has a whole bunch of health value in it and plop it on top of their Thanksgiving meal. It really helps when they have a hunger when they have a desire for what you have in that casserole dish. I don't want to call the gospel the casserole that I didn't want. That's a very bad link. But there is something that we're carrying around that we know everyone at that Thanksgiving table needs. And there might be just one person at that table that says, yeah, I, I really would like some of that. Sorry, I missed it. I didn't even know that that was available. Yes, please, right here. But you sort of want them to guide you to the right here spot on the plate too. There is a proper etiquette in how we engage a soul. And many of us are not trained in that side of it. We're just trained to go and, you know, reach souls. And so we oftentimes will stumble or pull Chuck Parsons uh, just because we don't know what we're supposed to do with this. We just know that they need what's, what we're carrying around. They have a leaky faucet and we have a plumber's knowledge. We can help them if they would just allow us in and they don't know what's best for themselves. So pfft, we knock open the door and go to that faucet to fix it. And we can't figure out why they're calling the police on us. We don't understand this dimension. So in soul matters, you mustn't cut in line. First, make sure the door is unlocked, open, and that there is a clear invitation to walk into their soul living room. And then I say, just in case we've already forgotten, remember Chuck Parsons. So I'm going to do a different sort of remembering in my life because I remember Chuck Parsons. By the way, I've forgiven Chuck, and there, you know, it's it's now just a great illustration to capture something. But I, I don't, you know, I'm not holding anything against him. And in fact, I could almost thank him because it's given me some great stuff for my soul to understand. Remembering Peter Trost. So Peter Trost is a very real guy. That's actually his real name. And Peter Trost approached my soul very differently. And one of the reasons I'm here, I mean, there's multiple people that you know, could claim position in the reason Eric Ludy came to Christ, right? My mom 
and my sister very specifically near the top of the list. Peter Trost is right up there, but his role is just very different. I was at, I was young college guy, freshman year, and I was in the cool zone. Okay. I had, uh, you know, I graduated from high school, went off to college. I was a soccer player, and I, and I wouldn't say that I didn't think of myself as a Christian. I would have called myself a Christian, but I was not going after Jesus at any level, and my life didn't look much different than everyone's around me. You know, that, and I went to a Christian college, and that was definitely, I, I want to put quotes around Christian college. It was, you know, leading people away from Christ far more than it was leading them towards him. So, what Peter does, I'm, it's my parents' 25th wedding anniversary. It, I came home from, from college. It's Christmas break, and they got married on December 27th, right? So we are celebrating my parents' 25th wedding anniversary. It's a whole bunch of uh, churchy sorts of people, right, that are lingering around my family. It's who my mom and dad hung out with. So there's a whole bunch of, I, if I could say it this way, uncool people uh, in the Ludi house, just mobs of them. And so I'm leaning against the counter downstairs. You know, there's a certain cool vibe you give off when you're cool, right? And I was giving off some cool uh, vibe and leaning against the counter and showing a disinterest to what's taking place around me. Because if you show just an interest, that shows weakness, right? So you give a little bit of that, you know, not interested, not seeing all this, and just sort of hanging out like, yeah, this is rather dull, rather boring. And Peter comes up, it's, it's hard to reach a guy who's a freshman in college who thinks he's cool. That is one of the hardest territories, and so I still remember this and I cherish this, that he comes and leans next to me. Doesn't say anything, just leans next to me. And he says, so, how's college? And so, it's all right, you know, it's okay. Now, here's the other thing I haven't shared with you. Pete, Peter already had gained position in my life. You know how? Everyone, when I was growing up in church, didn't know my name. My brother and I were called the Ludi Boys. And I would come home and I would be like, my name's Eric. That's Mark. I'm Eric. Okay? You could at least know that. I was sick and tired of being called the Ludi Boys. We're just lumped together. Peter knew my name. It's that simple, guys. I mean, it's sometimes it's so simple what love is, is he remembered my name. And I came home and told my mom that I really liked Peter Trost. She's like, oh, what, why? What, what? And she's like, well, uh, he knows my name. That was literally what I liked about this guy. He knew my name. And so in this situation, he had spent my high school years being the only guy in church that knew my name. And so there, there I am leaning against the, the counter, and he comes up and asks me how, how college is doing. And then he says... So how's your relationship with Jesus Christ? And you know, I was like, well, I don't know. You know, it's probably fine. And then he started asking me more questions, and I have to acknowledge, okay, it's not that fine. He's entering my living room, and he begins to sort of bring Jesus into my living room. I'm about to receive a, well, I think I just received a Christmas gift from my sister that I hadn't read yet. That was the book called No Compromise, which was the life story of Keith Green. And she was teaching Melody Green's kids at the time. And so she had it signed for me. And I was just about to read that right after this Pete Trost conversation. And I still look back with such fondness on how this man did it. Because I had a barrier of pride 
I had a cocky attitude. I was above everything that was going on, and church people didn't quite get it. But one of these church people pursued me in a way that caused me to open up my door and allow him to come into my living room and begin to talk with me. And so we could remember uh, Chuck Parsons all day long, but we could also remember Peter Trost, because there is a right way to do this, to effectively help others with their soul. You, first, you need to first allow the Spirit of God to have access to your soul. If you want to be great in this, the term in Scripture is judging. It's a very unflattering word, but to judge well or to make decision well for, a, for someone, to help them see clearly, you first need to see clearly yourself. And one of our great problems is we have a tendency to judge others when we still have <clears throat> logs in our eyes or planks in our eyes. So we don't see clearly to help others, and we actually end up injuring them. So here's our scripture that Jesus gives, Matthew 7, 1 through 5. The first line is one of the most quoted lines, uh, not even by Christians, by everyone that's not even a Christian. They love to whip this one out. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meti, it shall be measured to you again. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your eye? Hypocrite. Okay, now stop right there. We're right at a crux in this thing that Jesus is sharing. You see, what Jesus is, is sharing is not don't influence other people. Don't share the casserole that you're carrying around with anyone. They don't want it. You eat it yourself. That's not actually what he's sharing. He's saying it is very, very dangerous to dish out casserole on everyone else's plate when you yourself aren't even eating the casserole. That's not going to go well. First get healthy by eating the casserole. Then you're going to be healthy to say, okay, here's what the casserole did for me. So what we have a tendency to do is violate the process. First, Jesus wants to get to us. If we aren't being addressed, if we aren't being inspected by the Spirit, if we have planks in our eye, we will not see clearly to help anyone in this world. And the world senses that. What they hate more than anything else is a hypocrite. When I was growing up, there was one thing I hated in the church more than anything else, and that's hypocrisy. As a young kid, I detested it. And the last thing I want to do is now cultivate it. As we, as we grow up as the church in this generation, we cannot have a speck of it on our garment. Which means we have to allow the Spirit of God to start with us. Right here, Lord. Not what's going on out there, all this gender confusion. That's not my issue. You start with us. The world has fallen to pieces. I'm not going to argue that. But the church is not doing well. This is where God must start. If we're going to be effective in reaching this lost and dying world, we need to be changed, lest we go out there like Chuck Parsons. We, the world doesn't need any more of that. So here's what Jesus says. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. This is where it starts. Jurisdictions must be respected. You know that this is, this is a big deal? The scripture is the way that we actually learn this. The way the American government, the constitutional government was established was out of scripture, strangely enough. And this idea of private property, 
of actually a guardedness and a, a protection of jurisdiction is one of the key founding principles. If you could say it in the juris language of the day, it would have been whose jurisdiction is it? So they separated out different spheres of government, different branches, lest those branches would form into one and create some kind of dictatorship again. They separated out strengths and powers, and they recognized even states to have a different type of strength and power that even the federal government could not come in and dictate to. They created a separation of powers. That's what it was called. So jurisdictions must be respected. 2 Corinthians 10, 13 through 14. This is Paul speaking. Now, I'm going to stick in the word jurisdiction. It doesn't use that, but that's what it is in our conversation. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere or a jurisdiction which especially includes you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ. Paul is acknowledging he's not overextending by speaking to the Corinthians. They are under his jurisdiction. And so he is, he's only staying within his jurisdiction. Paul understood jurisdiction. So these are just some samples for you to chew on. A child should not attempt to rule, decide, and bring authoritative decision upon his parents. That would be awkward. Okay, it's not a child's position to discipline a parent. That, that isn't how it works. A parent should not attempt to rule, decide, and bring authoritative decision on someone else's child. The civil government should not spank a child for not cleaning his room. That would be strange. The civil government should not dictate to a soul what it should believe. Could you imagine if the government of our country said, this is what you're going to believe? Many governments have tried this throughout the ages. And uh, it doesn't work well because it is cutting in line. It is stepping into a territory or it's plopping casserole on top of a really nice Thanksgiving dinner. It doesn't work that way. The church government should not step in and violate family government. The civil government should not intervene in church discipline or home discipline. A business government should not interfere in the issues of church or, gov church or government or family. Finding our summer spot. Learning to mind our own business. So a summer spot is a, is a log with some blue chalk on it. That's symbolically speaking. It is a special spot designed for you to learn how to care for the first things in your life so that you are excellent with everything outside of it. You need to mind your own business. But what does that mean? So what is your business? That would be helpful. Your first business is your own personal rescue in Jesus Christ. You need to make a decision there. So you need to make a judgment in your life right there of where you stand. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Are you going to trust the living God to rescue you? Are you going to allow his Holy Spirit to live inside of you? Are you going to try and do this in your own works, and your own strength, and your own righteousness, or are you going to lean on his? You need to make a decision right there. That's your business, guys. And if you don't handle your business well, you have no business dealing with someone else's spiritual state. We have to make these things right. The second part of your business is your own plank. You have to allow the Spirit of God to deal with you. You are not yet fit, maybe, to go out there and deal with everyone else's specs when you are still lugging around a plank in your own eye. It is imperative that you not function as a hypocrite in this delivery of the gospel, but that you humble yourself before the living God and you allow him to inspect, you, him to move in, him to shine light, and him to correct. 
him to sanctify this life. Now, you will never be at the place where you are perfected outside of the perfection of Jesus Christ. In other words, you still will have, you'll be a work in process, but you will be clothed in the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus the whole while. But that, that part inside, which is you living on this earth in a functional way, is still being refined, is still being perfected. And so you need to deal with that, and that's what helps you see clearly to serve others. And then what is your business? Ironically, here's a little twist, guys. Those with specks in their eyes unable to see. You know that that actually is your business? Let's, let's look at it here. The twist, you are commissioned to mind the business of others. Now, didn't I say mind your own business? I did, and that's still true. However, part of your business is others, but not in the way that you probably want it to be. I'm not talking about you controlling others' business and you know putting your two cents in. I'm saying there's a reason why you have that plumber's bag and you have that plumbing knowledge and you know that you can help with leaky faucets. It's so that you could help with leaky faucets. They may not allow you in, but that doesn't mean you're not a helper with leaky faucets. You see, you're still pursuing, seeking, and to save. That is part of your business. Listen to Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. This is a huge part of Christianity. But you need to understand Chuck Parsons, you need to understand Peter Trost in this process. You need to recognize that the way you take care of the interests of others is not as Chuck, but as Peter. They're radically different than one another. Chuck has his own agenda, and Chuck probably has issues, okay? We need to show a lot of mercy to Chuck, right? Peter is thinking about how Eric could be one, how Eric could be helped. He sees the leaky faucet, and he really wants to get in there and help with it, but he's going to do it with loving appeal. He is going to do it gently. He's going to do it where I have a sense that he is caring for me and that he values me. If you've ever, you know, I don't know if any of you have ever sold Amway, but uh, I, I used to be approached with Amway salesmen all the time. I guess I was one of those guys that everyone's like, yeah, we want Eric in our downline. He knows everyone, right? And he's, you know, he talks a lot. Oh, this guy will be perfect. And so I kept on having the same conversation over and over and over again. What car do you want to drive? It's like, I don't care. I'm fine with the one I have. No, no, no. Like, if you could really dream, what kind of car would you want to drive? This is like, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to get me in your downline. I cannot approach a soul if they sense I'm going to try and put them in my downline. If they are questioning my motive at any level, it's Chuck Parsons all over the place. When you approach a soul, they need to know that you value them without anything coming back to you. They need to know that they have value to Jesus, and you need to prove that. And that's the Peter Trost model. I knew Peter loved me. I knew he cared about me. And you could say, how did you know that? Well, it's hard to imagine that just remembering my name said that. But it was part of the package. He had shown interest in me for years that when he leaned against that counter on that day, I could hear him. And the same is true in our life. We are still after those cool Eric's that are leaning against the counter. That is our target. But we have to approach it the way Peter did which I could say is the way the Holy Spirit approaches us. The Holy Spirit doesn't bang down the door and walk into our life. There's actually a knocking. Isn't that just a fascinating statement? That he is a gentleman, that he is honorable in how he encroaches, if you want to say it that way, or I should say engages with our life. 
The flesh version of looking out for others versus the spirit version of looking out for others. There's two different versions of looking out for others. Now, when I go through this first version, I could unpack this. This could be a whole sermon in and of itself, but some of you will recognize some of these tactics. The flesh version, pride. You know that you'll deal with other people because you have pride and you think you know better than everyone around you and you want to have them know that you know better than them. And that's a way of looking into the interests of others. Fault finding, boy, that's a fun person to have around, isn't it? Criticism, tattling, yeah, you're looking into the interests of others so that you can see them punished. That's what tattling is. You want to see someone else punished. And you get great satisfaction in seeing them punished. Classic little kid thing. You know, sibling thing. It's like, oh, and Toad did such and such. It's like, you know, what, what is the motive here? Because I may need to know that so-and-so did such and such for the protection of little so-and-so, right? And it could be out of a different motive. It doesn't have to be fleshly but it very likely could be. Reviling, hating, resenting, jealousy. There's various reasons why we will engage in the interests of others. Gossip is a classic illustration of engaging in the business of others. It's being a busybody, where you are interested in what is going on in others' lives, but not for their benefit. It's actually for their harm so you could elevate yourself. That isn't of the nature of the kingdom of heaven. There's a very different nature that the Spirit of God wants to work in us. We'll call this the spirit version. And these are the markers. Humility, hope, faith, love, kindness, anguish, and courage. Now, some of those might not make sense just off the cuff. For instance, like humility probably does. Like take a lower position, consider someone more valuable than you. But hope, it's because you have a desire, a, a thought that they could have that faucet uh, fixed. And you desire them to see what you have seen. You desire them to be set free. It's hope that moves you. Faith, love, kindness. Look at this one. Anguish. There is meant to be a tumult in your soul for the lostness of others. And to call it anguish is probably a pretty good description of it, that it's supposed to matter to you so much that it leads to an anguish of your soul, which is why you will continue to bring jam to the front door and knock. And even though you continue to get the slammed door and you will not break down that door unless they allow you in, that does not mean you will not pursue. It does not mean you stop loving them. Courage, I think that matches it pretty well. It's sometimes very difficult to have the 15th time of bringing the jam to the door. That's hard to do the first time sometimes, let alone the 15th after 14 slams in the face. The looking out for others test. Four checkoffs before you walk into someone's living room. So there's just four things that we can think through before we start traipsing into people's living room. Number one, is it your position to engage them on the matter? Sometimes it's not, and that's, that's an odd statement, but sometimes it's actually someone else's position to do it. There are a lot of things at Ellerslie where we'll look around the table, and it's like there's different people that are responsible for different things. And, you know, I, the reason I'm thinking of it now is there's oftentimes those moments where it's like everyone's looking around going, who's supposed to do this? And I know who's supposed to do it. It's supposed to be me. And I don't want to acknowledge that. I want it to linger in the air and hopefully Nathan will go, I'll do it. And then I'll have to say, no, no, that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. And he's bound to do it too. Uh, but there are things that I just know I have to do. But also, for instance, in this illustration, Nathan knows I need to do it. So it actually would be inappropriate for Nathan to even, because he knows I'm struggling with doing it, to just say, look, I'm going to do it. 
it's actually important for him to allow me to do it, even though I may not want to do it. And that's jurisdiction. And so in every situation, when you're engaging with a situation, there's certain times when it's you that needs to do it, but there's other times when you know that it's someone else that is actually supposed to speak into this situation. Number two is they're a void of leadership. Have you ever been in a situation where the person that is supposed to do it isn't doing it? Now, uh, now, classic Eric. I'm like, if I ever feel a void of leadership, I will take that leadership. That is a strength and a weakness in my life. So I've had to be tamed by the Spirit of God not to claim leadership that is not mine. Because if there's a void, we need a leader. Guess what? You've got one right now. And that actually isn't what's supposed to happen either. There needs to be that extra pause that says, okay, I could fill that void, but is there someone else that is actually supposed to step in when this person isn't. And for instance, if a pastor is failing to lead, if he's the lead pastor, then it might be the elders that are supposed to stand up and say, okay, we need to do something here. And it might not be you that's supposed to step into that void. It might not governmentally or positionally be you and your responsibility. Is there a void of leadership? If so, is it your place to step in or is there someone to whom an appeal could be made? Number three, what is your heart condition? That's very, very important. Are you seeking to genuinely save or are you secretly seeking to see someone punished? Sometimes the motive could be you're secretly desiring to be seen and to be noticed as a guy who cares about issues like this. The funny things that we do as Christians, isn't it funny that we would even want to be seen for standing boldly for Jesus in such a way that it's actually fleshly? I mean, who's gonna do that, right? And all of us could probably raise our hand and go, well, you know, it's sort of like if I were to tell you, when you sing your worship songs, sing them only unto Jesus. Don't sing them to the person who's in front of you in the pews. And you could be like, absolutely, absolutely. And, but it is strange how often you think about the people around you when you're worshiping Jesus. And the same is true when you are dealing with someone's living room, that you need to allow the Spirit of God to freshly test your motives. Why are you doing this, Eric? Why are you wanting to speak into this situation? What is behind this? Number four, would your engagement be of the Spirit of God in humility and love and truth and fear and trembling? Is the Word of God your basis or are your own human philosophies and or social sensitivities your guide? So final uh, remembrances here. Remember Chuck Parsons. He blew it. Let's not do it that way. Remember Peter Trost. He was successful. There was something about his disposition and his approach which was decidedly different. Now, really remembering Chuck Parsons and Peter Trost is not the goal of the Church of Jesus Christ. It's to remember Jesus Christ. The chief example of this is Jesus. And the way that he did it is so fantastic, so marvelous, that it is hard to even describe, though we try all the time as the Church of Jesus Christ. How did he win you? How did he reveal himself to you? How did the Spirit gain access to your life? How did he convict you of sin? You see, the devil has a counterfeit version of this. Like, for instance, how did you get convicted? No, that was a condemnation of the enemy. There's also a conviction, and it is gentle. See, I've spent a good deal of my life trying to separate out the devil's work and God's work. And one thing I can say about God's work is it's precious, it's beautiful, and it's sweet. And though I deserve that penalty, he gives me mercy. And his mercy triumphs over that judgment. 
The devil always wants to talk about judgment and condemnation. You're filthy, Eric. You look at what you did. You even knew not to do that and you did it. But God's ways are gentlemanly, if I could use that term. They are kind. They are humble, though he is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He still washes my feet with his mercy and his grace. So how are we to carry that truth into this generation? We carry it as Jesus carried it to us. We carry it as the Spirit of God has carried it to us. This is our pattern. We bend our knee, we remove shoes, and we wash feet. We take low position. We consider others as more important than ourselves. We're not just trying to do this for a trophy cabinet. We're doing this for Jesus Christ, and he has already told us how to do it. Remember Jesus Christ. Now, this is a profound statement, guys. He has not just gone before us and given us this great example, and all of us are like, okay, all right, guys, let's, let's do it. Because we can't do it. I don't know how many times we've tried, you know, in this room, how many efforts have gone out there to try and mimic Jesus and his perfection and his kindness and his love, his generosity. We can't mimic this. It's supernatural territory. But listen to this. Remember Jesus Christ. He has not just gone before us, but he has given us power to follow his example. He has given us all that we need for life and godliness. He has supplied us grace. He has given us strength to do it. So we, can't, we don't just esteem it. We actually say, Lord, do it. Shed your love abroad in my heart. Lord, give me the conviction of soul. Give me love for that person. Give me kindness towards them. Move me into a humble position. Lord Jesus, do this work via your Holy Spirit. This is the great work of grace. All right, we're going to finish with this. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, You see, when you take and approach these things the way Christ approaches them, there is a therefore that has serious punch to it. I could say, Peter Trost was kind to me. He loved me as a young man in high school. And when I came back from college with all my coolness, he approached me humbly, kindly, sweetly and patiently, Therefore, you see, Jesus is going to set forth a model and there's a therefore that follows. Therefore, God has also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every, na- every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's quite a therefore. We need some good therefore uh, in our life. Uh, And we don't want it to be Chuck Parsons, uh, for whatever reason, was in a bad mood that one Thanksgiving day and took his casserole out and slopped it on top of Eric's perfect masterpiece Thanksgiving. Therefore, Eric has struggled with forgiveness towards Chuck Parsons ever since. That's not quite what we're after, even though Chuck may have meant well in his mind. We're looking for something different. 
But to get that something different, we have to humble ourselves. We have to allow the Spirit of God to do some work here so that planks can be removed so that we can see clearly. To love a very unlovely world. You see, this world needs Jesus. But the way that Jesus is defined for them to receive Jesus is in and through us. Isn't, you know, some of us are like, that's a bad idea. <laughs> and yet that's his idea, so I'm going to call it a good idea. He wants to reveal himself through us. And yes, we have some planks. And yes, those planks need to be addressed so that we can effectively reach this lost and dying world. Father, this is a work of grace that we're requesting. This is not something that we can do in our own strength, but we can submit. We can humble ourselves and say, yes, Lord. We can let you into our living room. We can unlock the door and say, yes, Lord, to you. Because we have needs inside of our house and we ask that you would come in and fulfill the repairman's duties. Lord, we need you to do the fix-up work in us so that we can be effective in this world. Lord Jesus, we trust you. You are good and faithful and true. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.